Welcome to This Wildlife Podcast, a conservation podcast that brings you up to date with frontline conservation efforts from across the globe. Every week, we'll be transporting you to somewhere new. To the vast plains of Africa, to the humidity of the Amazon rainforest, to the stunning coral reefs of Madagascar. Expect stories of wild adventures and get to know the characters who are dedicating their lives to protect our beautiful planet. We're here to bring the wild to you. Hello and a warm welcome to everyone tuning in today. As per usual, I'm your host, Amy Turner, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Paul Rose onto the podcast. Amongst so many other achievements, Paul is the expedition lead for the National Geographic Pristine Seas Expedition and is also the former vice chairman of the Royal Geographic Society. So Paul, before I go on to talk any more about your background, I just wanted to welcome you onto the podcast. It's awesome to have you here today. Hey, thanks very much, Amy. It's great to be here. Well, it goes without saying, I'm sure you have some fascinating stories to tell us. So firstly, Paul has been right in the thick of some of the most exciting and challenging expeditions on Earth and is one of the world's most experienced divers and polar experts. Now, Paul's expertise enables scientists to explore the most remote and challenging regions of the planet. For example, he was the base commander of the Rothera Research Station in Antarctica for the British Antarctic Survey for 10 years. In terms of diving, he's worked in Antarctica as the British Antarctic Survey Institute Dive Officer. He ran the US Navy Diver Training Program at Great Lakes Naval Training Centre and has trained many emergency response dive teams, including the police, the fire department and also underwater recovery teams. Paul, as I said, is the former vice president of the Royal Geographic Society and chair of the Expeditions and Fieldwork Division. Now, out of all of these accolades, the main topic um, for today's conversation will be around Paul's role as the expedition leader for the world-leading National Geographic Pristine Seas Expeditions. They go where no one else has ever been before. And I think I'll let Paul explain a bit more about this. But before we get on to that, Paul, I've read you've had a mountain named after you in Antarctica. Now tell me, is this the highlight of your career so far? I don't know about a highlight, but it was it was a particular highlight. Because the funny thing is, there was two, two envelopes came uh, some years apart. But in 1999, I received a big pile of post, usual mail, and the, the most inauspicious 
you know, plain envelope, which could have been the gas bill, <laughs> was the letter advising me that uh, I've been awarded a Majesty of the Queen's Polar Medal. Wow, amazing. And I, yeah, it was one of those envelopes you could easily have thrown away. And then a situation was repeated uh, probably, I think it was maybe uh, seven years ago, Another envelope, you know, gruesome envelope, could have been a bill or a reminder or something. And it was a letter to say it was from the Antarctic Place Names Committee that said had a mountain. So, so I guess the lesson there is be, be aware of those gruesome-looking envelopes. You never know what might be in them. <laughs> yeah, that's a good letter to have. And what is the mountain called? The Rose Mountain, the Pool Mountain, the Pool Rose Mountain? What, what are we calling it? Well, it's a beautiful bluff near my old research station at Rotherham. And so they call it Rose Bluff. So from the sea, it's a big high cliff, uh, ice capped with, with a peak on the top. And, um, yeah, so that whole beautiful bluff is, is called after me. It's really, it was amazing. It's one of those things you don't realise how much it means to you until you open that envelope. It's a life-stopping moment, you know. <laughs> Well, what an incredible achievement and highlights the impact that you had at Rothera. And for those who don't know, it's the main research base in the Antarctic. Now, I'd love to talk to you about that. But today, you know, we're going to have to uh, hone down on what we're going to talk about. And, and for that, we're going to talk about the National Geographic Pristine Seas Project. The project was founded and is the brainchild, really, of Dr. Enric Sala. Paul, before we get into the nitty-gritty of what it takes to lead a diving expedition like this, could you give an overview of what the project is? Yes, as you say, the genius uh, Enric Seller, he was a professor at Scripps University and he suddenly realised, he had this moment and he said, you know, I realised every science paper I wrote was like writing the obituary of the ocean. And it was a sense of helplessness. No matter what he did or him and his fellow senior marine scientists did, not much was going to change the situation. And he'd recently seen a brilliant National Geographic explorer called Mike Fay, a friend of mine who had done the great mega transects across Africa. So he'd done this great simple journey of just walk across two years, a few thousand kilometers, to see what was there, do a proper environmental survey, find new species. He got the whole place protected with the help of um, President of Gabon, Ali Bongo, great man. And he got the whole place protected. It was a terrific, you know, and, and Enric said, that's for me, that's what I should be doing. So he went to National Geographic, proposed a very simple idea. And the simple idea was, why not find, explore and help protect the last wild places in the ocean, the last pristine places. National Geographic liked him, liked the idea, said they'd get behind it if he raised most of the money. Enric turned out to be a brilliant fundraiser and did it. Well, you only have to look at the numbers to see the immense positive impact this has had. Am I right in thinking that you've had 22 marine parks um, created off the back of this project, equaling 5 million square kilometres? You've, you've also carried out um, 30 world-leading expeditions from the Cocos Islands to the Azores to Rajarampat in Indonesia. Paul, it's right. seriously impressive work. It's a huge successful story. And it's because, it's because lay, um, you know, Enric has sort of instilled in all of us this laser focus. So it goes all the way from uh, our funding, our planning, all of our organisation, all the way down to every single decision I make at sea. I think, is this going to help us get the place protected? So the media team, we're all on one ship. The media team want to be here. 
for a few more days because it's so unbelievably beautiful and can create the whole film there. The science team have done their one-day survey in the area and we need to move. So you can imagine this classic battle that goes on. And uh, I always ask myself before we decide whether to stay or move, you know, to simplify it, which decision is going to help get the place protected? And that's all that matters. And that's the whole of us. That's the whole of our team. We think that way. We have a political analyst team um, in D.C., one, one of them in London, and then we've got our own media team and science team. So, yes, it's all about getting the place protected, and that's led to the success. So we're, we're very pleased with that. Uh, six million square kilometres protected. We've got a long way to go, but we're pleased with that. So this is an ongoing project, then? You're, you're not over? No, we're on. Um, it's been a couple of phases, really, and we've got it started. And in a number of expeditions, they worked really well. Um, and then one great day, I was hosting an event for National Geographic at the Royal Society in London. It was a call to action for UK government for ocean protection, particularly in Pitcairn Island. And Enric was there. It was his project, Pitcairn. We met. And in that instant, we liked each other. And I, I thought to myself, I get the feeling we're going to work together no matter what. Not long after I was in Ireland, in terrible conditions, really, it was in, I was in Kinsale, uh, Royal National, it was a lifeboat um, event, uh, tourism event and all that. And I was running the diving channel because it was sideways rain blowing a hoolie. And Enric called and I couldn't, I literally couldn't understand what he was saying. It was, I got maybe 40% of what he meant. But he was basically asking me to come on as the expedition leader, so I said yes. <laughs> Amazing! What a brilliant call. And then we could brilliant exactly, and then brilliant. we could expand and go to the more challenging regions like the polar regions and the and the really remote places like Tristan da Cunha and all the southern southern ocean places. So so that really gave us the capacity. And um, yeah, so he continues um, as the project lead. It's his project. He's a terrific fundraiser and understands politics and the economy. He understands all the things I don't understand. And I've got the good job because I go to sea and dive. I must say the excitement and anticipation in the planning phase of these expeditions must be so cool. What's it like to organise and, and mobilise a project like this? That's, that's exactly it. That's a really great question, Amy, because that's the kind of thing that um, motivates me. There's an element in the expedition where we're organising um, all of the politics because that sort of differentiates us from everybody else. There's a We do all of the politics first. We do all the policy analytics in parallel with making the science case. Um, otherwise, we could do the classic old-fashioned thing where we'd go somewhere, fall in love with it, then spend the rest of our lives working against incomprehensible bureaucracy to get the place protected. Whereas we do all of that first. So we analyse a number of years of targets ahead of time, scientifically, at the same time looking at the political opportunity, looking at the current affairs, what is motivating that particular government and leaders and influencers to make smart decisions about the ocean. And then we go. So it's, it becomes, it's a very good technical exercise. Once we've got that, it's the permit. And when we, at the same time we're organising a permit, I'm organising ship charters, getting the team put together, working with the um, in-country community to make sure that they feel that they're leading it. We don't just arrive and say, aren't you lucky? We're here and take over. We very much take some swift steps backwards so that the country themselves have an equal leadership role. 
And at some point, with all of that managing and organising and the shipping of the gear and the technical diving side of it, um, there's a moment where, as you say, it dawns on me, hey, no one's ever dived there. Or maybe if someone has dived there, there's been a few minor reports, enough to get you excited, but no one's done a full comprehensive survey. So then it's a very exciting moment. Shortly after that, things get very busy with the final pre-departure events. There's a lot going on. Then we arrive and it's hugely busy getting the ship loaded. But once we slip lines and we start to move and the expedition comes a live, beautiful thing. So they are the key moments. There's, a, there's the politics, there's the sort of analytics, there's the excitement, anticipation of diving where no one ever has. And then there's the sort of period of dealing with a lot of logistics. Eventually we slip lines and we're a live, beautiful thing. Well, I'm sure any diver is practically drooling over the thought of diving in these places. And so you go to places no one has ever dived before and you're setting up a team of scientists and everyone else. Do you get to dive or are you too busy in your role? Yes, I absolutely get to dive, which is, which is a great thing because there are, there, we have had expeditions where it would have been tricky for me to do a lot of diving because there's so much going on. Maybe we've got a twin ship operation, so we're dealing with other vessels. There's a lot of logistics. And they can be tough days. I mean, I wouldn't expect to dive as much as, say, Manu, our great underwater filmmaker, or Alan Friedlander, our chief scientist. They're in, the, they're in the water three or four times a day, of course. But there are times when, luckily, I need to be underwater to be filmed underwater so I can tell the story in the film. So that's great. Um, or, indeed, there might be something I'm doing more practical underwater, helping with the teams because there's equipment to handle or set up underwater, which is equally great. Or I've got such a great team that if, if they see me spending a huge amount of time with the logistics and with the captain and with the, everything else going on and the other ships, they'll grab me and say, hey, what are you doing this afternoon? I go, Phew. tons of work on. They say, come and jump in the water. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> so I do dive on every expedition, some a lot more than others. And how big is your dive team? Well, we, um, minimum size is about 14. We, 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 we're, we're stretched if, we, if we're on a ship that can only hold 10 or 12 people. And we have had a team as big as 32. Um, so Because it depends on the, on the in-country partners and the community. But our dive team is made up of, um, we've got Alan Friedlander, who's our chief scientist, and then we've got our set team of our scientists, plus the in-country team, and then we've got our media team, and we normally just work with our media team. And they're in the water all the time. So, yeah, it's a big old team. And so to get to the depths and explore these remote underwater worlds, I imagine you have to have an incredible array of kit on board, from submersibles to rebreathers, um, the, the lot. It depends where we are. Um, what we like to do is keep it as non-technical as possible. Because that way we can get a lot done. We don't burn lots of brain cells before each dive. We can really keep it simple. So we like to use on scuba, open circuit scuba, we're using nitrox. It's great. It means that we can just have a safety factor in there. And if the scientists are, say, diving three or four dives every day, most of their work is at sort of 30 metres max. A quite long dive, say an hour each, something like that. The media team are all over the place because they, they're trying to film everything. So they maybe will have two or three dives 
again, nearly always on open circuit scuba. So we keep it really simple that way. Um, now, to get to um, some of the places like the Twilight Zone, we'll use uh, uh, rebreathers, uh, Trimix with rebreathers, which works well. For the stuff, when we're working, depending who we're working with and what we're working around, we use the rebreathers a lot for the media team. Because, you know, really, as, as we all know, it's lovely. You know, you get, you're close to the beasties, quiet, lovely, long, safe dives. Or getting to the great depth, you know, Mariana Trench and whatnot, we have this wonderful fleet of drop cameras, which have been all the way to the bottom of the Mariana Trench and back. And they're just remote cameras, big balls, and they're baited, go to the bottom and film, and then we can trigger them to come up. But we use them on every expedition, even if we're someone relatively shallow. Um, we use various submarines, mostly the one on the Argo, because that's got a working depth of 400 metres. And that's terrific for us because not only can we have good um, three-hour um, survey dives and filming dives, we can get country leaders and country influencers down in the sub. And often it's the first time they've seen their waters and it's the old line. We can get them to fall in love with their own waters and then they can protect it. And then in the midwater, we use these pelagic cameras, baited pelagic cameras, which we like a lot because they drift around at sort of 20 metres of hours on end, recording what there is. And then, of course, we're not frightened to do a lot of snorkelling. We love to do the snorkelling when we can. So we try and keep the technical side of diving pretty simple. The last time we used the um, Trimex rebreathers was Malpella, Colombian waters, because there's some key elements there at 70 metres. Um, and then on board, we, as we've got our own got an excellent compressor unit for the nitrox. And then we have two recompression chambers. And uh, depending which vessel we're on, depends what we take. We've got the Hyperlite, the one, one person collapsible pot, which we really like. Uh, we've got the new one, so it all goes into one Pelican box, which is great. And then we've got a Corwin, uh, Australia made two person chamber for when we're on bigger vessels. Well, it's fan fabulous to hear what goes on. And for those who aren't perhaps familiar with the phrase hyperbaric recompression chambers, these, these are critical safety tools to ensure and treat divers that have suffered from decompression sickness. So, Paul, of all the places that you've dived, are there any places that stand out um, as being on your top three dive locations of all time. Well, I think it has to be Antarctica because I remember those early dives at Rotherham. You know, no one had dived there. And every single dive was, you know, a world's first. And the things we were finding were unknown. And the scientists were keen to work out what species could be collected to be able to tell a proper story but um, and to establish long-term data sets. But we didn't know enough about the region to even begin to know what species could be collected without damaging them and all the rest. So it was absolutely brilliant. I particularly loved coming up from a dive with, you know, some of the world's greatest marine scientists and saying, hey, what was that round thing like that? And what were them worms that were doing? I said, what do you think they are? And they said, you know what, we've got no idea. And I used to love that, really love that. And just the fact that even on a very simple dive, maybe collecting sediment samples from the bottom and hearing whales in the distance, or hearing all the seals clicking, or seeing, you know, orca swimming away from you that you didn't hear but just came whizzing past. So those Antarctic dives or diving up north in the Arctic has always been a real thrill for me. I've loved diving in the Arctic, been very lucky up there. 
But then similarly, I, I nearly started with the Mediterranean because I was very lucky on BBC Oceans to dive with that six-gill shark. Um, you know, people don't realise the, the, the population that exists in the, in the Mediterranean. If we just left it alone a bit, it would be absolutely unbelievable. It would recover brilliantly. But, yeah, we're very lucky between Sicily and the Italian mainland is the Straits of Messina. And it was there that after three attacks, finally got to dive with a beautiful six-gill shark. That was really something because they were they're old, you know, mythical creatures. Not many people are lucky enough to dive with them. And all this talk of ocean exploration has got me thinking and, and dreaming. <laughs> so you roll off the Zodiac into parts of the world that no one has ever seen before. Have you had any surprises when you're down there that you didn't expect? Yes, I mean, a number of them. One of the things, when we first make that dive, when we're, we're in the Zodiac, roll in and you know you twist and look at the bottom there's there's that thing what what's going to happen because it's exciting when we're with lots of sharks because we go great you know we're not we're not the top predator anymore and it means that chances are this place is pristine because everything's fully in balance yeah the top predators are there that's exciting but things are always surprising i still remember clipperton clipperton's an island off the coast of mexico it's part of the french overseas territory I led that expedition uh, four years ago, I think. And we have, I mean, I've never seen so many moray eels that were just swimming about. It was just obvious. It was just so good. Beautiful waters, clear, vibrant sharks, uh, wonderful. You know, I forget the percentage of coral cover. It wasn't 100%, but it was very close. And it was a, whoa, look at that. And when we got down amongst, down at, say, 30 metres or so, and the mores were just everywhere. At first, it was great, and it made for good filming because when I was talking and I was being filmed, then I could explain, well, I've never seen these before, and the mores were coming in and getting jammed up between our BCD. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so we were, me and Manu and his assistant, the cameraman, and me, we were constantly taking our gear off to get them out and put it back in again, put it back on again because it became, they were a nuisance in the end. And eventually, inevitably, talking to, with facing the camera, being filmed with one up inside my flipping. Oh bubble, my word! And it locked onto my ear <laughs> and wouldn't let go of my flipping. No. Oh, so I ended up, you no. know, bleeding like hell and coming to the surface and doing these marvelous bits to camera with uh, bits and pieces hanging oh, off my ear. <laughs> so that was. <laughs> what a story! <laughs> and. Um... Have there been any other sites that have been far more challenging than perhaps you first thought? Obviously, there's a certain element of risk with diving, especially in places that haven't been dived much. So, so yeah, has any any place caught you by surprise in that respect? Uh, Malpelo is a good one. Um, Malpelo is a, is, is a really vibrant, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place off the coast of Colombia. And it's, the, it's at the confluence of a number of big ocean currents. So it means that the way it sticks up there, you can imagine what the water's doing. In any one dive, it seems that in, say, an hour dive, every 10 or 20 minutes, it, it's like being in a whole new set of water. There's a huge upwelling, and it brings up, you know, cold, clearer water and a whole different set of sharks. 15 minutes later, there's an enormous current coming from an unknown direction, and it, it, it clouds up and there's a whole nother different life. So the whole, it's like having 
four or five dives in one, but it, it's very hard to keep any kind of decent dive profile. You've really got to work very hard at keeping a sensible dive profile because you're pushed all over the place. So that was, it's great to feel it and, it, and, and the, you, know, you can tell the story of the energy and we can film the energy, but it's, it's, a, it's a big handful that. And sometimes the current was unpredictable. We looked at tides and we did everything we could, but it's, it's known for these sudden enormous currents coming from nowhere. So it's like diving in a river. So it's very challenging, but beautiful. Another challenging dives are when the ice is on the move. You know, anytime the ice is on the move, it's all right when it's, you know, when it's very cold, very frozen up and you cut the hole, go through, then it's, everything is stable. You know that that's your exit, you're on the line. And, or if you're in open water, but the ice is over here. But the trouble is once that ice begins to move, it can be moved by forces that aren't affecting us. It's a gorgeous, sunny, relatively warm, calm day. But 100 miles away, it, it could be um, windy as hell and it's blowing all that ice into your location. So I'm never very happy when the ice is on the move. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, it really just goes to show you, you guys really are on the sharp end of ocean exploration there. Now, a question about logistics. I'm fascinated about this. How long do you spend out at sea and do you tend to spend all of that time on a boat or tend to come back to land, you know, and have there been situations where you've ended up going back to a an area that you wish to protect? It depends. We tend to be at sea for a number of weeks. So up in the Arctic, we were seven weeks. Um, Tristan de Kuna was also seven weeks. Uh, Selvagens was short. It was two weeks. It's very close to them. Mainland of Portugal, that was that was a short one. And we tend to go just the once. So we, we try and do one big expedition in engaging, you know, with part with our local partners, get the science report uh, written up, get the compelling media put together, and then with that we hope to have enough information for the host country to begin protection or to protect it straight away. So that's our normal method. But then, of course, we don't just like do it and run away. There's a lot of remote partnership going on when they try to establish it. We can help them do that. Or we start making repeat visits. But at the moment, we try and do just one big expedition per place, an average four expeditions a year. Awesome. I mean, it's such a fascinating project, and I just want to hear more and more about it. Now, one area I am particularly interested in from a conservation point of view is how your expeditions go towards being so successful at protecting and creating marine protected areas. Perhaps you could explain a little bit more about this. Yeah, it's great because we firstly, because we do the right political analytics first, we pretty much know why um, or what the chances are of a region being protected. So, for instance, the Seychelles. Uh, it's an area I know well. I've worked there for many years. And they wanted, they had an appetite to protect 30% of their EZ, but they were carrying a lot of international debt. So they worked out uh, a debt for nature swap. And this was uh, uh, the Nature Conservancy, who are our partners, with the Club of Paris, with the Seychelles government, and worked out um, a debt for nature swap. And that meant they could afford to protect... They, forgotten, is it 30 million or 50 million of international debt was offset in return for them protecting 30% of the oceans. 
They couldn't protect 30% of the ocean without getting to the outer islands of Aldebra. So we put together the expedition for the outer islands of Aldebra. I led that. And then with their close-by science reports and our remote islands science reports, they, the Seychelles government put it together. But to communicate that to the Seychellois, they needed media. So then we also did a film, and we always do a film that is a, it's our political story. The Seychellois were very keen on a sort of 20-minute film that was told by the young Seychellois. Because they were trying to reach the Seychellois community, the island managers, and there's 99 islands, all the islands, all the groups out there. So they needed a, a message beyond the science report. So it made sense, technically, to protect 30%. But what 30% and what were the reasons behind it? So then we need then a film. So that's where our filmmaking comes in. So then we can present to the particular government, in this case the Seychelles, a glorious film that tells the story of why and what it's all about, told by the Seychelles why. A beautiful science report. And we also produce a slimmer, say, four-page summary of the science report. So we really work hard on the communication so the community understands, well, okay, we we can or we want to protect it. And then they go ahead and protect it and it becomes announced and it's on the, uh, it, it, it becomes legally binding. And then the other thing, it wasn't long ago and there was a problem with monitoring and enforcement. The story was, you know, you couldn't possibly have a marine protected area unless you had patrol vessels and patrol aircraft and all that, which is hugely expensive and committing. But now with satellite monitoring, We've got a partnership with Vulcan. Um, it means that all of the regions we work in can have satellite monitoring of their region. And that's really sophisticated now. It's not just when they turn on their AIS. We can now see them even when they turn it off, which means we can see when a vessel enters a protected area. The old game used to be turn off your AIS, go in there and fish, pop out the other side, turn it on, and sell your fish, but now we know what they're doing in the marine protected area. So that was one thing, that was monitoring, but then enforcement was a bit tricky. How do you enforce this when you've got, you know, let's say a Panamanian registered vessel with an Asian crew on board, um, the operation maybe is owned by Spanish or the Chinese, fishing in British waters and then selling the fish in Valparaiso, Chile. It was too complicated. But then four years ago, something came in called the Port State Measures Agreement, which means we can prosecute. So now these illegal vessels are being prosecuted for that, which is terrific. I mean, there's 62 countries signed up to the Port State Measures Agreement. So it's brilliant. So between the establishment of marine protected area, plus the monitoring and enforcement, within my lifetime, we're, gonna, we're definitely going to see the end of illegal fishing. So it'll be a great champagne moment. There. Yeah. Absolutely, a definite champagne moment. Now, Paul, I'm really interested to get your your point of view on the news that came from the Galapagos in the summer. Now, for anyone listening in, there was a news media about the Chinese fishing fleet that was fishing uh, literally on the borders of the protected zone in, in the Galapagos. This also happened last year in 2019, where thousands of endangered sharks were fished, not to mention all of the other species that finds its home in the Galapagos. 
We're talking about over 200 boats on the water in this fishing fleet. So it really is a city. So Paul, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this because it makes me feel incredibly helpless, very angry. It's obviously hugely political. So yeah, what what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I mean, the, the the Chinese have really developed a reputation, but it's, they've got thousands and thousands of expedition industrial fishing fleets, and um, you know they're putting a fair bit of lip service into. Uh, there was a recent bit on the news, I think, uh, last Thursday, about they've they've, they've voluntarily with uh, held back some of their squid fishing fleets. Um, but I th- it's just lip service. They're they're absolutely going for the ocean at the moment. And this Galapagos just proves that thousands of them are completely unsustainable. They're fishing sharks. We're still at that terrible number of between 70 and 100 million sharks uh, killed every year for their fins. Yeah, luxury goods. Um, so it, it is a complete disaster. But the Galapagos don't help themselves because um, they are fishing a lot. The Galapagos fishermen are fishing a hell of a lot there. And um, there's been reluctance with the Ecuador government to establish full protection. Funnily, as years ago, I assumed that the Galapagos must be 100% protected. But if you go online and have a look, you'll see only a tiny percent is protected. So they're not helping themselves. There is something that you brought up that around the edge of a protected area, the fishing is very good. So if you, you think back to the classic marine protected areas that are being established around the world, one of the reasons that they're so successful is that the fish don't know they're protected. So they're... You know, if fish are coming on like no one's business, they're moving outside and the spillover effect is great. So commercial fishing on, on the spillover area of a marine protected area is good business. It can be very sustainable, clever business. But what's happening is this is the worst of all cases because the Galapagos is not protected and the Chinese are there <coughs> fishing the hell out of there. So it is, a, it is a complete disaster. But I think we're getting, I think there's enough... Um, focus now with COVID-19 that people do realise that that the only long-term vaccine against a future pandemic is to re-establish our relationship with nature. And that your health and everybody else's health is reliant on the uh, health of nature. So I think we're getting there and I think this is really going to help us. There's a big international push now, multinational push to protect 30% of the planet by 2030. So I think we are getting there. And there's enough of a reaction against the Chinese fishing, particularly the way this collapse has come off. That I, I think we can use that in our favour. No, it's great to hear from your perspective, a positive that has come out of this whole COVID situation. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing headlines now that we would have dreamed of a year ago about nature. And, and you know, who would have thought we well, got headlines that say we need to protect what we've got, we need to restore what's been damaged, and we need to reset our value with nature. I mean, wow, I would have had a heart attack and died happily a year ago if I'd seen that in the newspapers. But now we're seeing it almost daily. Now, Paul, we've talked about all of your outstanding achievements from polar medals to expedition leader for National Geographic. How on earth did you end up doing this job and, and going down this route? Well, I think it all came up. I can't seem to do anything else. I just can't seem to stop, you know. And um, for me, it came because I, I was, and I think I still am not, I'm not very academically inclined. And I had a lot of difficulty at school. I, I could not do school. Um, 
And school in those days was a bit different than it is today. There wasn't much support for kids like me. And I was, me and my Herbert mates, we were, you know, in the big race to the bottom. Uh, we loved being away from school. We liked being in a bit of trouble. And I couldn't do it. I, I, you know, the, the school books, the um, taking exams and learning was a hugely complicated thing for me. I couldn't do it. Obviously, I, you know, had these negative experiences at school. And it wasn't until I was watching Jacques Cousteau and Hans and Lottie House and Mike Nelson in particular on Seahunt. When I saw them on television, I was watching them and that was a, I was looking at that life and thinking, <laughs> that's for me. I, I want to be a diver. And I was 11. I just failed me 11 plus. I knew absolutely nothing. I couldn't learn anything. Yeah. Um, but I was sitting in front of that television thinking, blimey, I'd love to be a diver. That's for me. And it, and it wasn't motivated by conservation or anything. I mean, it was... It was mostly Mike Nelson. He was having proper underwater battles and rescuing everybody in these, you know, in mines and flooded, you know, crashed airplanes. And all the beautiful women wanted Mike to teach him to dive. Yeah. He looked fantastic walking down the beach with his diving gear. And I thought, right, that's, that's for me. I just want to be a diver. But I had no idea how to be one or anything about a career. And then there was 14. Um, I was struggling again at school at a really low point and, um, a geography teacher called Mr. Gray took me and my Herbert mates to the Brecon Beacons. And that 10 days was amazing. Stayed at the Merthyr Tidwell Youth Hostel, walking and climbing and navigating and being in the rivers and looking after ourselves outside. And that was what got me realising, ah, I can do this. I could do it. I had no idea I was doing mathematics, but looking, look, you know, mapping a compass and working out where I was, I thought it was dead easy. And, uh, you know, working out, which is a safe ascent route and uh, navigating a decent descent route. I had a good instinct for all that stuff. So it was Mr. Gray, the geography teacher, who turned me around. Um, and then I did an apprenticeship at Forge as a toolmaker at Dagnan, which was a great move because it was very practical, uh, which I loved. It meant I, then I began to like things like mathematics and learn properly. But I was still a diver, still a climber, and it wasn't until I went to the States that I turned my you know, my amateur BSAC diving ticket. And I finally became a paddy instructor and started teaching everybody. And I turned my amateur climbing into becoming a mountain guide and discovered something called science support, which is the same business I'm in now. You know, scientists need people like me, approximately three. Globally, mm. there's about three science support staff to each scientist. Because scientists need pilots, divers, climbers, boat drivers, Mechanics, diesel engineers, plumbers, electricians, doctors, dentists, you know, scientists in remote places need a science support team. So once I discovered science support, I thought, ah, that's for me. I'm going to be traveling to the most remote parts of the planet working for science. And that's what I've done most of my life. Well, I'm sure there's many people listening in today fascinated by your story and eager to contribute in their own way. What's the best way to contribute and make a difference, especially when so many of us are grounded um, at the moment? Well, I would say that there's a lot to do. The first thing is remember, um, as a voter, how powerful you are as a voter. Because we really can make an enormous difference in that. You know, we live in a democracy and it means that if we look at our leaders and influencers, we can decide how to vote. Now, they can either be politicians 
And we, I think, need to question our politicians' values better. We don't. We tend to look at what their promises might might mean. We tend to look at what their history is and what their party uh, affinity is and that sort of stuff. But I don't think we're doing a decent enough job on values. I think we should ask them direct values. Please display your values. And they could be anything. Imagine if, you, if, if at the top of our voting forms, instead of it said, you know, Jane Doe, conservative. You know, so what, what does that mean? But if it said Jane Doe, uh, a new scuba diver, uh, keen to do that, uh, a very experienced sailor, done these journeys, uh, worked six months for uh, uh, NGOs in Africa, and is a champion for the local humanities and arts projects in Cumbria. You'd say, oh, I know a bit about Jane Doe. And if you then went to vote for somebody who hadn't displayed their values, it'd be like a big red flashing light. Alert, alert, you're going to vote for someone who's displayed no values. I think we should, and when we buy mortgages and buy cars, and when we're asked to vote for who is the chairman of the board or who is a local councillor, we need to ask really defined, laser-focused questions as to what their values are. And if we care about the sea, as we do, we can say, what's your relationship with the ocean? And see what they're saying. I have a bit of a dream as the way we vote, and also that when I next go into the bank or go into a mortgage company or, you know, have to buy new house insurance or something, walking into that office, and instead of seeing some grey-suited businesswoman or businessman, seeing someone with a look in their eye, bring you up short, you think, God, what? and you say, what have you been doing? So I've had a fantastic diving weekend. And you know that look that people have when about a weekend? Then that's the sort of person I want to do business with. And I think when we vote or select things that we're going to buy, we need to ask those questions, particularly if we're maybe buying fish in the supermarket. We need to ask if it's trapped, where it came from. Ask all those questions in the restaurants. That's the first thing we should do is vote. And I think that will help us to reset our values. Another thing is look at our sphere of influence. We've all got our own sphere of influence. You know, if we're if we're teachers, we've got the teaching community, our parents and, and the young ones, of course, but let's say you're a mechanic. In your workshop and in the in in the place you do your business and your customers, you've got a sphere of influence. And if you care about the ocean, you know, get some information up in there and say, hey, I've done your MOT, it's all passed, uh, you owe me 300 quid. And on the passenger seat, you'll find some information about the ocean I've just been working on. <laughs> and I think we can then establish a proper relationship with the ocean across all the community. Well, that's a very, very good look, way of looking at things, and I'm certainly swayed. Well, Paul, it's been a complete privilege uh, to talk to you today. You've got so many stories to share, and I really can't wait to see where you and the Pristine Seas project end up and the far-flung expeditions that you do in in the following year. So thanks again, and best of luck with with everything. You're welcome. Thanks very much, and I hope to see you there at Chessel Cove one day. Yes, totally. I'll I'll see you there. You've listened to this wildlife podcast. Please do check us out on our Instagram page by searching for this wildlife podcast. You'll find loads of links and photos to our world leading guests. And often we have some competitions cropping up too. 
Of course, our main aim is to share the conservation stories that must be told. We're currently listened to in 52 countries, so let's try and beat that and get to 53 in this new series. The main reason to spread the word is we want these vital conservation messages shared far and wide and for people to be entertained and feel like they're connected to the wild areas of our planet, even from their homes. So, if you fancy it, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and please do subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does help us. So, from everyone at this wildlife podcast thank you so much for your continued support we're delighted to have you along on the journey and remember we're here to bring the wild to you to you